If you would this morning turn to an exciting passage of scripture, and that's Isaiah chapter 52, verses 1 through 12. As we turn there, of course, you're aware the world around us seems to be full of bitterness, division, chaos, and strife. And this is true. It is. It was also true for the people of Judah over 2,500 years ago and for every generation since. We live in a sinful world affected by sin, a world that is groaning and awaiting the time when God's people will be revealed in all of God's glory. But until that time comes, what can we offer the people of God as far as comfort is concerned? The gospel. Here is the gospel invitation to a beaten down people of the world. Isaiah 52, 1 through 12. Isaiah writes, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart. Depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. As we consider these wonderful words of God's grace, let us bow briefly in prayer. Lord, may these words be meaningful to us because your spirit is applying them to faith in our hearts, and to the proclamation of this word in our mouths. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear it, hearts to understand it, and that we might with joy rejoice in them. Father, I also pray that you'd be with my mouth. Give me strength to proclaim your word today, consistent with your own, or else never be heard from again. We pray these things in Jesus' name. During the time 
that Israel is writing these words, and particularly in the next few years afterwards, there will be broken leadership. There will be kings who are weak, kings who even become puppets of their oppressors, kings that certainly would not necessarily have the best interests of the people in the light of God's relationship with them in their mind. There would be threats of the enemy becoming more real seemingly daily. By the time Isaiah is writing these words, already Assyria has become an oppressor and soon Babylon would take over Jerusalem and send them all into exile. There would be, of course, a veneer of religion without knowledge or real hope because it was not a true religion that was from the faith of their hearts. And this would be called out by the prophets. Does it sound like I'm talking about Judah or the United States of America in the 21st century? We have broken leadership. There are now new inspired threats of an enemy. There is all around us a veneer of religion without knowledge or real hope. And hopefully the church is calling that out into the world. But eventually... Isaiah has written that things are so bad that God's wrath of judgment is going to come upon them, not only for the sins of their leadership, but for the lack of faith and relationship with God of all of his people. And it will become so bad that this cup of God's wrath would cause them to appear to fall asleep in a drunken stupor. And yet, a new day dawns. That was the end of chapter 51. This is the beginning of chapter 52. Notice what he says. Wake up. He's saying wake up to redemption. Then he's going to say rejoice. Rejoice in salvation. And finally he's going to say enter into the presence of God himself, of God. Now remember where he is and where they have, he has stated the people are by the ch- end of chapter 51, verse 20, it says, Your sons have fainted, they lie at the head of every street like an antelope in a net. Verse 17 has said, You have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Verse 21 says, Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Of course, the idea is that they have drunk God's wrath, and like someone who is inebriated, they have fallen into a drunken slumber. And then chapter 52 comes, and you think, boy, God's really going to let them have it if they were to wake up. But instead, he says this, put on your new reality. This is a new day. He says, first of all, Put on your strength. This is new strength. They didn't have any strength before. They were staggering and falling over, weak and unable to do anything for themselves. But now he's calling them to put on new strength. He tells them to put on new garments. Remember, if they were in a drunken state, they probably had thrown up all over themselves and were in filth and their garments were stained. Later on, he's going to say, even if you were clothed in your own righteousness, these righteousness clothing was like filthy rags. 
Here he says they are new, beautiful garments. Then he says, there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. He says there's a new purity that is here. He's probably referring not just to the the physical sense of uncleanness, for these very same prophets are the ones who say, circumcise your hearts. This is an idea of purity before God. He says, now there's going to be new purity. He says, shake yourself from the dust and arise, be seated, O Jerusalem. What are they going to sit in? The idea is there's a new throne there. It's a new status. And then, of course, the other thing that's going on here is he says, loose the bonds from your neck. God has broken the chains. All they have to do now is take them off. There is new freedom. Now think of this. A people that in God's sight are like a filthy, drunken, sleeping person in the streets. And he says, wake up to new clothes, new strength, new purity, new status before me, and new freedom. What has happened? They didn't do anything. There wasn't anything that the people did in order to get those things. And Isaiah says to wake up. And then he says, he's calling them to an old relationship. The thing that he has always called them to. The thing that he had established with his people from day one. Thus says the Lord, verse 3, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. He's referring back to what he said in chapter 50. Verse 1, he said, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? You see, God didn't sell them to anyone. He still retained ownership. In other words, he had for a time briefly given up their their, uh, their freedom to these others, but he still retained the ownership, so he was willing and able to bring them back. And here he was in this old relationship reminding them that he owned them. He reminded them that they were part of God's ownership. They belonged to him. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into the Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. He's reminding them in his ownership, he has at times given them over to others for judgment and discipline. And so he also reminds them of their oppression, their oppression in Egypt, their oppression through the times of the judges and the kings up to the time of the Assyrians coming and conquering the northern kingdom of Israel and wreaking havoc upon all the cities, particularly the fortified cities of Judah. And yet in all of this, what has changed? What has changed? He says, verse 5, now, therefore, what have I here, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing? Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. They're reminded of God's glorious name and the effect of that lack of faith on their part and that broken relationship. And now how the whole world has been brought to see by the people's false profession of faith that they are discrediting and abusing and bringing scorn to the very name of God. After all, that's what happens. If you profess the faith of Jesus Christ, 
and you go out in the world and act as if you're not a believer at all by living a life of impurity and unrighteousness, you are basically saying to the world, I don't care about God's name and I don't care about the name of Christ. And here it is, they were doing this. And he says, all the world sees what you are before a watching world and they're abusing and bringing scorn to my name. You would think God would say, I've had enough. Therefore, verse 6, my people shall know my name. Wait a minute. Here is the people that's brought scorn to his name, who doesn't deserve any of the things he's giving them, like new garments and strength and purity and status and all those things. And they, they don't deserve any of that. They've been... Uh, Horrible to the extent that he sent them off into captivity from time to time and punished them with judgment. And here he is, he says, I'm going to make it not that you are judged for all those things for all eternity, which is what you deserve. You will know me. You will know my name. You see, that's what faith really is. It's knowing God. It's knowing Jesus Christ in a personal relationship. And here he says, therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. They're reminded of God's glorious presence. They're tempted like so many of us to say, where is God? They told him back in chapter 51. They say, wake up, God. We want you to act like you did in the past. Where are you? And he's telling them all along, I've been right here and you will know I am here. I'm here. He's the one giving us the new garments. It's not because we're making those garments. It's not because we're making ourselves clean and getting ourselves up and dusting ourselves off. It's that God has given us these things as a free gift if we but trust in him. I remember a friend we had in South Dakota. His name was Brian. Brian grew up a troublemaker. He was one of those teens who got into trouble, but his relationship with his mother and his stepfather was very poor, and over time, as a teenager, his behavior grew so bad that he uh, at one point was arrested and sent to prison. It was in prison where he was, once again, at the end of himself. He was invited by those ministering to him to look at the old relationship of the Sunday school teachers and those that he had re been reminded of in church and called to a new relationship and a new reality in Jesus Christ. And Brian came to his senses and he trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ in a jailhouse conversion. He came back and he became an upstanding person in the community, so much so that when I preached his funeral as a young man who had died from a horrible disease, the church was crowded and the community lost a warrior. What was different about his life? What had he done to deserve God coming and changing his life? Absolutely nothing. He was sitting in jail, a broken, legally broken man, guilty of terrible behavior. But in the midst of all of this bad news, he was told to wake up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the proclamation to the world. Wake up to the gospel. 
After all, what he says here next is so beautiful in this poem. He's basically telling us rejoice in salvation. He says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. This is the good news. This is a people who did not deserve anything but God's wrath and judgment, and he's calling them to wake up to a new reality in his love and presence. This is salvation. It didn't cost any money, but it would cost the blood of Jesus Christ. It didn't cost him any status, but it would cost his son, Jesus, the exalted position of God to humble himself to become in the presence of sinners and affected by sin, scorned and despised just like the name of God. And here in this salvation, this beautiful messenger, the beautiful feet of this messenger who comes, this is the joyful messenger. Here's what he's doing. He proclaims peace. And this is so important. This is not just peace in the midst of their enemies. This is peace with the holy God to whom they had been at war as his enemies because they had defiled his name and were rebelling against his covenant and commands. But this messenger is bringing peace. He's also bringing good news. This is the gospel. That's what gospel means, is good news. He's bringing good news, because what is he doing? He's publishing or proclaiming salvation. And then finally, he's announcing God's rule, his reign. This is one of the questions they were asking. God, where are you? Why don't you act? If you really are our king, you're supposed to rule and defend us. When we elect a president in our own country, what is the number one task we ask him to do? Not to solve all our problems, but to rule and defend us. That is the main idea of what a king does. And he's to conquer all his and our enemies, as our catechism tells us. And here these people are wondering, we have these enemies, we're going off into exile, we're threatened by all these things, God, where are you? And this announcement by this messenger is like the picture of a city awaiting news of a victory. And they see in the distance a lone runner. And that lone runner is coming, stepping and dancing down the road because he's bringing good news of a victory and that the king is still on the throne. And as they see that messenger coming, the watchmen on the wall are the first who see him. And it says here in that verse, it says, the voice of your watchmen, what do they do when they see that runner? They lift up their voice, and together, they not sing, they shout for joy. That's what the word is here. For eye to eye, they receive the return of the Lord to Zion. Not only is this messenger coming, this messenger either himself or is later followed by the Lord himself. The coming of Christ looking towards the future. Isaiah is writing this as if it has already been accomplished, and yet it wouldn't be accomplished for another 600 years. Here it is. 
or 700 years. And here it is saying that in this vision, this illustration, first of all, there's this joyful messenger that perhaps can't contain his joy as he's marching down the road to the city, the watchmen see, and immediately they know he's bringing good news, and they begin to raise up the shouts of joy in victory. The shouting watchmen then, in turn, inspire the whole city, even the waste places of the city, as it says in verse 9, to break forth into shouts of joy. Why? The Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. It's because God has brought salvation. He has brought redemption. He has purchased their salvation by the blood of his son. And the shouting city in all of their joy of what is taking place. And you've seen those cities where they're shouting at the joy of victory. We've lost a whole generation almost where they remember those things after World War II on V-Day. When the people came back and they shouted with joy in the streets and the streamers flew. This is what's going on here. The Lord has bared his holy arm, his power before the eyes of all the nations and all of the watching world will see salvation. What a beautiful picture. A city that is broken, despised, in shambles, divided, in chaos, rebelling against each other, not knowing what to do. We know the history tells us that this is a people who will be chaotic in the times of the Babylonian exile. There will be groups that even say, let's go back to Egypt. Jeremiah will tell them, don't do that, and yet they do. Jeremiah dies in Egypt. There's another group, the poorest of the poor, who remains in the land and eventually continues to rebel against God. And another group that's taken away into exile before they're eventually brought back, a time of chaos and distress and all those things. And Isaiah is presenting for them a picture of victory and wonder and awe. Why? Because God's victory is not just the victories that this world sees. God's victory is the victory over sin and death and the devil. I've had a lot of experience, not so much recently, but in the past with a lot of conferences and special events. You know how it is. You go to a conference and they excite you and they build you up and you're supposed to have this, this great experience and come back. And, and sometimes when you go to these things, whether it's for me, whether it's like a, a biblical conference or a general assembly of our denomination or something like this, one of two things often happens. One, I could go up on a mountaintop experience and have a great experience. On the other hand, I could look at all the things that are going on and think, boy, I'm just doing a terrible job and having a terrible life, and I might have a Canyon Valley experience. But the point of these conferences and so forth is they're to inspire us and to build us up and all this, but sometimes what happens is we get on a roller coaster ride when we come back and our life becomes back in the normal activity of things and we begin to forget all those things we learned in the conferences and all those types of things. What about this mountaintop experience? This is a reminder we need to constantly go back to the word of God to have the joy of salvation. The life around us is going to bring us disappointments. Our leaders are going to fail us. 
Our churches are going to be a mess because they're made up of sinful people. The idea that we're going to have some kind of utopia on earth is a dream that will never become reality until Jesus comes back. Where is real lasting joy found? Beginning with the beautiful feet of the messenger who came to announce God's victory over sin and death. Joy is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this morning, if you've forgotten the joy of the gospel, remember it once more. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. There is no reason why you should have God's salvation. There is no reason on earth why any of you should experience God's love and joy and comfort in a sinful, destructive world that you helped cause become sinful and destructive. But by God's grace, he has called us to wake up to a new reality of salvation in the gospel, which is inherently good news. Now, once you are saved by Jesus Christ and his blood, what then does he call us to do? Then he calls us to enter into his presence in part by departing from our impurity. Now, this is very important, the order of these things. He saves us first. You don't have to be a holy person to come in the doors of a church to experience God's grace. You can be a total mess and a total pagan who doesn't understand or believe anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you can march in these doors, hear the gospel, and by the power of the Spirit and Word, experience a transformation if you trust in Jesus Christ. And then God will begin to clean you up. He says, depart from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. This is using the priestly and Levite terminology of those who would carry the instruments of the temple or the tabernacle. And he says, if you are among them who are doing that, you have to be pure. You have to be cleansed and pure. They would have to go through purity routines and rituals in order to do that work. And he says, for those of you who experience the gospel and rejoice in salvation, you are to make that effort then by the power of the Spirit at work in you to depart from impurity. So there is first a negative command. Don't touch what is unclean. If you know something is wrong before God, don't even touch it. Don't even get into it. Don't let it taint you. Don't touch what is unclean. And then there's a positive command. Go out and keep pure. In other words, we are to turn from our life of sin and impurity. Once we understand God has forgiven us of the sins we have confessed, and then we turn to a life of holiness. We go out and we seek to keep ourselves pure. Of course, we know we can't do it on our own. We can only do it by the power of God at work in us. And God reminds us of this. What does he say? He says we're to dwell then where? In the presence of the Holy One. We are to be holy because God is holy and the Holy One is with us. It says you shall not go out in haste or go out in flight. For why? You won't have to worry about it. God's going to go before your face, before you. And he will be your rear guard. On the one hand, this reminds us of the time in the wilderness, in the desert, 
when they had escaped from Egypt and God appeared to them and was with them in the pillars of cloud and fire by day and night. And he was in the front to show them where to go, and when they stopped, he was in their rear to protect them from the enemy. Here is what God does for his people, the church, so much so that Jesus says, all those that the Father has given me, I will never let be taken away. Perhaps you've heard the story of someone like Martin Luther or many others They try to clean themselves up before coming to God. Martin Luther was one of those monks at the time, right before what we consider the beginning of the Reformation, although there were attempts of Reformation long before that. Martin Luther was a good monk. He was someone who confessed his sins so much so that that his confessors told him, you've got to stop doing it. You're confessing too many things, all these little details. He would go to them all days and hours of the night. He was one, when he was sent on a mission to Rome, he was one who wanted to endure crawling up the steps in order to be humbled enough before God to be acceptable in his sight. He tried his best to be the best monk and earn by his righteousness the joy of God. He never got it until he saw in the word of God that we are saved by grace and not by works. You see, if we try to make ourselves worthy before God, we're going to come to despair. And the reality that there is nothing we can do to make us worthy before the holy God. But the cleanup does happen. The cleanup happens after God saves us and we come to realization we cannot save ourselves and we trust in Christ alone for our salvation. And then, not only do we begin that cleanup by departing, not touching unclean things and going away from impurity and so forth, but we're recognizing we're in the very presence of God. We're reacquainted with the call to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, as God told his people in Exodus 19.6. You see, this is what they were always supposed to be, holy and priestly before a holy God, so that when the world saw them, they were seeing the God who had bought them and made them and called them to be mirrors of his glory. But now, by this salvation, not what they have done, but what God has done. And now, of course, what they are doing by the power of the Spirit to be the salt of the earth, that is, those who are seeking to prevent further decay by glorifying God as the light of the world, as priests before God, and a holy nation, a holy people before him, we together then proclaim the good news. Let me tell you, no matter what you think of the events of the last week, no matter what you think of the state or condition of your life right now, no matter how much you worry about your children or your grandchildren, the good news has no expiration date. The good news is not something that shall lose its luster. God does the work. God does the work. 
When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were still in the filth of our sin, God called us out of the muck and mire. You see, true joy is our new status. When he tells these people drunkenly in their stupor of God's wrath to wake up and put on beautiful new garments, their new status and renewed relationship with the triune God is revealed. And now, like those who hear these words in Isaiah's day, together as those of all ends of the earth who will see the salvation of our God, we see it personally when we come humbly before God. So if you're thinking today, what are we going to do in a nation that seems to be on the decline? What are we going to do in a nation that's suffering from the ravages of a virus and an economy that seems to be all topsy-turvy? What are we going to do when all the things in the world seem to be changing at a pace that we cannot grasp or understand? We go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ and we marvel at the joy that God's truth shall stand forever and his son Jesus Christ has brought salvation to the ends of the earth. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this wonderful passage that impacted me so much this week. I pray that you have made me a faithful messenger to bring this same message to those who are here this morning, and that together we might, by the power that you have given us in your spirit and in your word, help us to have beautiful feet to others. We pray these things in Jesus' name.